before our final message from the book of Colossians, I would like to briefly address the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine is a beloved country filled with citizens who bear God's image, a nation with a rich culture and history. What's more, Ukraine is also a sovereign nation with her own elected leaders, her own system of laws and self-governance, and her own territorial integrity. This is recognized in every nation of the world except for one notable exception. When Vladimir Putin ordered Russian troops, tanks, and bombs to attack Ukraine without provocation, Mr. Putin trampled on those rights. He violated international law as set forth by the United Nations, and even worse, he violated the law of God. No matter how Mr. Putin justifies this aggression to himself and his enablers, his actions and their actions will not stand on the day of judgment. If you are gravely concerned for the people of Ukraine, as I am, let us claim the promise embedded within the warning of our text, Colossians 3.25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The Lord Jesus Christ loves Ukraine. He loves justice, and he will set this all to rights. So to that end, let us be in prayer for the people of Ukraine. Prayer is a mighty weapon for the people of God. We will give an opportunity to pray during prayers of the people, and we're going to continue in that posture until this situation is resolved, no matter how long it takes. So I invite you to join uh, with me in this collect for peace from the Book of Common Prayer. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace, to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. You know, uh, our life, a war like this reminds us that our life is often broken, isn't it? And hard. Life is sad many of the times. More sad than we ever thought it could be. The world, the flesh, and the devil take their best shots at us. And the best shots at everything good in this world. Thorns grow among our closest relationship. Rust eats away at our best work. We, we set out on mission and risk with hearts full of faith and willingness, only to experience blowback. Yet, in all these situations, when we feel the bite and sting of the fall, the glory of Christ gives us dignity. He lifts up our heads. He gives us words to speak. He gives each one of us a high calling to live out. And at the end of our life, he rewards and recognizes every last thing we have done for his glory and in his name. Now, in our final reading from Colossians, we're going to see the Apostle Paul who wrote this book to early Christians. We're going to see him apply the glory of Christ to three important areas of our life where we often experience setbacks. The first area is our love, our loves. Um, 
Secondly, our labors. And then finally, our mission. No matter how badly these areas of our life are going, um, the Lord is with us, he's helping us, and he's holding us up. And I want you just to, to notice, I invite you just to begin to observe as we walk through this text, how often Paul uses a phrase similar to, in the Lord. That in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, as is pleasing in the Lord, that he's using this phrase because he wants us to see that our whole life is embedded and housed in the presence and glory of the Lord. So whether we are a Christian living through war in Ukraine, or whether we are here in Chicago with our own set of circumstances and setbacks, we are in the glory of the Lord. And because of that, our heads can be lifted up and there can be dignity and honor no matter how much we have setbacks in our life. So let's talk about dignity in love. Dignity in love. You can look um, with me at verses 18 through 21. The Apostle Paul, in, uh, who's writing Colossians, gives instructions for two important relationships. The first one is between husbands and wives, and the second one is between parents and children. These are specific commands for very specific um, situations. Yet the tone and the vision of these commands, you'll find that they can apply in different ways to other close relationships, such as roommates, close friends, dating relationships, and extended family. But let's start with the instructions specifically to the married couple. Verse 18 says, wives, submit to your husbands as, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, Paul's instructions to wives to submit to your husbands does not sound very dignifying to the wives from our perspective. And to many of us, it sounds demeaning to the wives. Um, even just a command to submit sounds like an act of oppression, um, as if Paul thought wives were somehow inferior to their husbands, uh, like less of a person and less of a voice and less of a vote in decision-making. Is that really what Paul means? And we should answer that question as we should answer every question of Scripture where we have a puzzle about how it's to be interpreted by paying attention to the context of even Paul's writings and the writings of Scripture. In the verses immediately before and after this particular verse, we see Paul honoring every individual Christian, whatever their earthly status. Um, every member of the family and church um, gives and receives honor. What's more, Paul affirmed the equal standing of men and women before God when he said this, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And then in another letter, Paul calls both husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So taken together, we see a composite picture. Paul honors women, and he calls wives to honor their husbands. He's calling them to be responsive to their godly initiative. And this is so much deeper than a surface-level cooperation, that respect and honor really comes from the heart. It's so much less about who outranks whom and more about what place is this coming from. Um, on the flip side, he's calling husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. The word love is not a sentimental word, um, but is truly modeled after Christ's death on the cross. Husbands, we are called 
to lay down our lives one moment at a time for the well-being of our wives. Like Jesus, we do this willingly and gladly. It's not a surface-level act of sacrifice that we do um, uh, out of a sense of duty or obligation, although duty is involved. Um, But we do it out of a sense of willing, joyful sacrifice, that it's our honor to give our time, our money, our energy, and our wholehearted personal presence to our wives. Love and respect is a very powerful combination in any relationship, and it is absolutely vital in marriage. When love and respect pass back and forth between a married couple, we can share needs, we can share ideas, perspectives, and a genuine unity. We can build an atmosphere of encouragement in our marriages, affirming the good that we see in each other as often as we can, really honoring one another and respecting one another. Uh, Dr. John Gottman, noted psychologist, noted four enemies to any marriage relationship. When love and respect go missing, um, these four enemies are likely to take their place. Um, Dr. Gottman called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse because they signal that the relationship is in grave danger and perhaps even close to ending. The four horsemen are this, in in increasing order of uh, seriousness. It starts with criticism. Criticism is that nagging message of you always get it wrong, you never get it right. This is different than a complaint of sharing, hey, I wish that things were different, which I have every engaged couple do. (laughs) The wish list is different from a criticism. Criticism is just you're wrong and you always get it wrong. Secondly, defensiveness. Defensiveness is a posture of you're absolutely wrong and I'm absolutely right and I will fight to the death to prove it. Thirdly, stonewalling. Stonewalling is a nonverbal message that you have no place in my heart that you're cut off. And then finally, contempt. This is the worst one. Contempt is an attitude of disgust towards the other. It's a dagger to the heart with a message, you are morally inferior to me and I reject you. Now these four horsemen, quite honestly, can creep into any relationship, marriage or otherwise, and we've all been guilty of at least one of them. This is why every marriage needs the grace of Jesus. Every relationship needs the grace of Jesus. We need his healing and forgiveness. And, and um, we, need his, uh, we need the healing and forgiveness from our spouse as well when we have transgressed or from another close relationship, someone we've been guilty of. Criticism and defensiveness and stonewalling and contempt. Now, um, that's where it begins is we just say, Lord, please forgive me. Um, Person in my life, please forgive me. I I really have gotten it wrong, and I want to make it right. Now, there's another relationship Paul addresses, and that's um, children and parents. He's calling them to a Christ-like dignity in their relationship. Um, And he says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then verse 21, he addresses the parents. where He says fathers, which um, in the ancient world, addressing fathers, there's an implicit message that this is going to include the parenting of both parents. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You could also translate that, lest they become embittered. 
Um, I just want to start by speaking to all the kids and the youth, and just, I'm so glad that you're here. I, I love that you're a part of our church. You have an important part to, to play in our church, um, not just because you are the future, but because you're the present. So um, anyone living under their parents' roof, um, I, I just want to acknowledge something from your life that maybe that doesn't go acknowledged very much, and that is that it's hard to obey your parents, isn't it? Especially in everything. Obey your parents in everything. That is a tough, tough assignment. Um, sometimes their rules don't make sense to you, do they? And sometimes it's hard to understand. Um, they don't quite understand where you're coming from. Sometimes that doesn't always get, like, acknowledged where you're coming from. So... Sometimes it's just tough to have parents, and, and it can be, maybe it's the most challenging relationship in your life is your relationship with your mom or your dad or both. So yet I want you to know something and hear something from me, that verse 20 wasn't written to ruin your life. Verse 20 was written to bring dignity and power to your life, and, and the Apostle Paul is addressing this to you. Look at with me again. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The Lord himself is pleased by this. You have a special way, kids, to please the Lord. You have a special way, youth, to please the Lord. A special calling for a very specific and a very short season in your life Maybe it seems that it's going to last forever, but I promise you, this is going to go fast. And you've got one opportunity to really change your posture towards your mom and dad. Um, and not just surface behavior, but really from the heart. If you can learn this now, you'll carry this with you for the rest of your life. It will be a dignity and a crown that you'll always have. The way you treat your mom and dad will set a pattern and you're going to reap blessings for the rest of your life by the seeds of honor that you sow in your relationship with your parents as you obey them in everything. No matter how hard things are for your life at home, you have the dignity of pleasing the Lord through heartfelt, immediate obedience to your parents, and I promise you it will change your life if you can change the posture of your heart towards your mom and dad. Now, how about the parents? How about the parents? Our dignity and power is in uh, this command, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become embittered, lest they become discouraged. And some parents are thinking like, what? Pro provoke my children? My children are the one provoking me. Yet it is our reactions to our kids' reactions that have such a powerful impact on them, isn't it? Our reactions can provoke them to anger. Our reactions can discourage them and embitter them. We really can crush our kids with our harshness. We can freeze our kids with our coldness. And now if the four horsemen of the apocalypse can invade a marriage, imagine how powerfully they can trample on the heart of a child. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and worst of all, contempt. As one pastor noted, we usually don't get angry with our kids because they have broken God's law. We usually get angry with our kids because they have broken our law. 
We don't even know we have these laws until our kids come along. I should not have to do any parenting after 10 p.m. Or I shouldn't have to be patient after a long day of work. Right when I'm about to speed myself, I shouldn't have to start parenting. Parenting really does expose our limits. It destroys our illusions, and it shows us our own need for grace. Every last parent has failed to love their kids well at some point. And maybe the best gift, parents, that you and I can give our kids is our own brokenhearted humility and going to our kids and saying, I've blown it. I am so sorry. I got it wrong. Would you please forgive me? I need God's grace. I want to be... I want to be a parent to you, and yet I need God's grace to be the parent he's called me to be. As one of my friends told me once, you know what, Aaron? Your kids actually don't need two heavenly fathers. Right? They get one heavenly father, and that's not me. Your kids get one heavenly father, and it's not you. And so go ahead and admit your need for grace to your kids and ask for their forgiveness. Uh, your heavenly father is not harsh with you when you are harsh with your kids. He's grieved, but he forgives you and he loves you. And he's ready to help you rise up to the calling that you have of being a mother or a father. Loving people close to us in close community, whether it's spouses, children, roommates, or friends, others in close community is impossible without grace. So when we, when we want to move into this love and respect zone where Paul is calling us up to this place of dignity, we actually start with humility. We don't start with pretending to have it all right. We say, I have truly failed to love and respect and honor you as the Lord has asked me to do that. Would you please forgive me? I want to repair our relationship. I want to grow and I need your help and I need your patience. And the glory of Christ um, will lift up our heads and lift up our close relationships. You know, it it leaks into this world. The glory of Christ leaks into this world through the tears of the humble who are in close relationship, who are seeking to make repair. Humble spouses, humble kids, humble fiancés, humble friends, humble neighbors. There's dignity in it, my friends. This pleases the Lord, and it is so fitting for the high calling that we have. So there's dignity in love. What about labor? Dignity in labor. Um, Is there dignity in our work? What if work goes unrecognized? What if we have a terrible boss? What if most of our hard work is unpaid? What if there's rampant injustice in our work? What happens if we hate our jobs? What if we're unemployed or underemployed? For all these situations, the Lord provides motivation and justice for our work. So let's read together Colossians 3, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, no matter how um, degrading our work situation, the people Paul addresses here had it much worse than anyone Uh, any one of us. They were bondservants, meaning that they worked very, very hard for a master just to subsist. 
This wasn't as terrible as chattel slavery as was practiced in the United States. Um, and yet, it was still pretty bad. Bond servants in ancient Rome were not seen as persons. Aristotle called slaves talking tools and properties without a soul. As uh, Pastor Ryan Laughlin noted, addressing bond servants like this sent a powerful message to all who heard it. He says this, for the bond servants, consider the wonder of being spoken to by an apostle. For the masters, realize the consternation of having their talking tools addressed as if they had capacity to reason and inestimable spiritual value. And he was addressing that to a commenting on a passage from 1 Peter, applies just as powerfully in the book of Colossians. Paul is giving bond servants and workers of all kinds a noble purpose. They can labor with sincerity of heart for the Lord himself. They can reverence him, the Lord of glory, not merely striving for human approval. And so um, this can actually be broadened out that all of us, no matter what our station in life, whether we're not employed at all or employed part-time um, or employed full-time or overworked, um, or, if, or if our particular calling in life is, is a full-time work that isn't paid at all, like if you're a student, um, we can do this. We can apply verse 22 to our own life and our own heart and our own situation. You work for a bad boss. On paper, their job is to support you, but the fact is, they make your life harder, don't they? They make your job harder. They actually get in the way of you doing your job. They give plum assignments to their favorite people while they disrespect your ideas and pile on stressful assignments with no end in sight. The good news is you don't actually work for them. Don't tell them that. You work for a very humble Lord um, who says well done to you even in the most stressful interactions you have with your boss. He says, well done. You're working for me. I appreciate your attitude. I appreciate your hard work. On the weekends, the laundry overflows like lava from a volcano. Dirty socks, stained shirts, and none of it sorted. It seems to you like someone else should be doing this. Your gifts really are for other things. Um, yet the Lord over all creation appreciates the patient way that you match socks. You're a project manager for a very important product launch. And you notice that one of the members of your team is getting overlooked. They are new and they lack political capital. So you extend some of your hard-earned credibility to advocate for them. They really do gain valuable experience, but it does end up costing you in the final product. And you uh, lose some face with the team. Yet, in the court of heaven, you have gained dignity and honor because the Lord has seen what you just did. A customer is rude to you. They don't see your dignity in Christ. They don't know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're just a uniform to them. They can only see you as an it. They have a demand that you must supply. And so in Christ, you can hold your head high and fulfill their request, not to please them, but to please Christ. Now, these are just a few examples of what Paul was referencing in verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men or women, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. The Lord dignifies our work um, by asking us to work heartily for him. He dignifies our labors by promising us a future inheritance. Come work for me, Jesus says. Your daily labors are, are part of my kingdom and very valuable to me. When no one else sees you going the extra mile, I see it. When no one else sees your dedication, I see it. When your decisions are misunderstood and your motives are um, maligned, I see your heart and I have a reward for you. In the Roman world, bondservants could receive no inheritance at all by law. Yet in the kingdom of God, they were richly rewarded. He will reward our good work uh, done for him with a rewarding inheritance. One of the best rewards will be seeing how our lives have pleased him. We're going to see Jesus face to face, and he's going to show us, here's how the, the, the labor of your life, from the time um, you could have any intention at all to the time when you couldn't work at all, here's how you pleased me, and here's the difference that you made. You honored me, I trust you, welcome into your inheritance, welcome into your reward. Now, as we saw before, if we're going to keep going in our labor, we need the assurance of justice, and this justice is promised to us. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done or the wrong she has done, and there is no partiality. Friends, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And people who do not recognize the authority of Jesus will reap what they sow. It is assured. Um, now, this, uh, this applies to the workplace. Jesus will deal with oppression in the workplace and stealing credit and acting like a snake. He sees it and he will reward it with justice. This can keep us actually from seeking revenge or joining in the injustice ourselves. To know that there will be justice for all who labor um, will keep us from becoming oppressors ourselves in the pursuit of justice. So let any of us who have any kind of power, whether informal or formal, be faithful to carry out justice in our work, because we all have a part to play in seeking justice. Verse 1 of Colossians 4 says this, Colossians 1.4, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Um, we're not masters, and we shouldn't be, um, so let us seek just pay for our workers, just policies for our workplace. Let us be generous to team members, generous to clients, and when we fall short, let us tell the truth, tell the truth, and be right before God and our fellow human beings. We have a master in heaven, so we give credit to those who have truly done the work. We do not take credit for ourselves. Um, this, just knowing that we have... Um, someone who's going to set everything right in heaven, and we're working for him, this levels the playing field. There's a hierarchy everywhere, even if you don't admit it. We don't like hierarchies in our culture. We love everything to be equal, but the fact is it's not fair, is it? It's not equal. It's not fair. And there's some people with more power than others, and we all have some power. We all have some power. And so we can seek to use that power for justice and for good 
and just knowing that the playing field is leveled in the eyes of God. Christ gives us dignity in our love, but he also gives great dignity in our labor by giving us a deeper, purer, higher motivation and assuring us that there will be a rich, merciful justice in the future. We'll get a taste of it now, but we'll get the full experience um, in the kingdom of God. So um, what about our mission? What about mission? Is there dignity in mission in the year 2022 after all the scandals and after all the setbacks in the church? Um, you just think about this season of Epiphany. Have you been encouraged as you've read the book of Colossians to see the glory of Christ? Hasn't it been rich? Hasn't it been encouraging? Hasn't it lifted up your hearts and your minds and your lives? As some of you feel a burden to uh, share this glory with those who have yet to see it. You, you want people to uncover the treasures of Christ for themselves and see Christ change their life. To see him um, give his love and majesty and freedom to your friends and your neighbors and your family. Um, some of you are, have a holy burden to bear humble witness in this day. Um, and yet so many around us have rejected this treasure of Christ, the treasure that we have been savoring and uncovering and, and, and claiming as our own. So many that people that we know have absolutely turned aside from this treasure and said, no, thank you. And so this can be discouraging for us who care about the mission of, of the kingdom of God. Um, after, after all the setbacks, after all the discouragements, after everyone who's walked away from Jesus has just been so crushing, it's tempting to lose heart and retreat and stop praying and stop hoping. So Paul leaves us with some final words of encouragement. As we end our series in Colossians, as we end the season of Epiphany, here's some final words of encouragement to anyone who loves to, to see the mission of Jesus go forward and make a difference in this world. Verse two of Colossians four, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. As one person noted, God can open doors that no one can shut, and he can shut doors that no one can open. Paul is in prison behind a locked door, but he doesn't ask them to pray that the prison door be open to him. I'd probably pray for that. I'd probably ask for prayer for that. I'm in prison unjustly. Pray that the doors of prison, but he's, he's even like not even focusing on that. He asks them to pray that God will open a door for the gospel to be preached and received. Why? He knows this is a prayer God will answer with greater consequences than him simply getting out of prison. And so we pray for God to open doors for mission. We pray with friends for this. We pray with our city groups for this or our triads for this. Lord, open the doors for mission. Open my heart for mission. And once you do, give us words to speak that will connect the dots for our agnostic or unbelieving friends or family. 
We have a small window of opportunity in our day for this. The Lord can open doors with his unique power, and it will change lives. So the Lord provides power for mission in prayer, and it is a mighty weapon, and it opens doors, and nothing can stop it. But he also provides persuasion. He provides persuasion, which is important. Why? Because persuasion matters with people. That all of us are every day being persuaded one way or the other. That's not necessarily bad or good, but it's all in about the manner of persuasion and also the effectiveness of it. We need to make sure that our persuasive efforts um, come from a good place and also have an impact on people. So uh, verse 5 talks about this persuasion first in actions and then in words. Verse 5 talks about the actions. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. And then there's words. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So notice the missional pattern of persuasion. It's actions first and words second. Um, Walking in wisdom is the action. People, watching, people are watching our actions before they are listening to our words. How do we treat orphans and widows as a, as a church? People are watching. How do we invite outsiders into our lives? How do we treat those closest to us? How do we respond to a bad boss? People are watching you. If they know you're a Christian, it's important to be open and honest about that. People who are not a Christian are watching you closely to see how you respond, especially to situations that are difficult. So our actions matter. Verse 6 is the words. Um, Let our our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt, answering people wisely. We want to speak with graciousness. That means that we're answering objections that our neighbors have, understanding their pain points and objections, and showing them honor and respect. Yet they're not boring answers. We should eliminate Christianese from our language and season our words with salt, making them interesting and tasty, making people want more. When you eat a salty dish, if it's not oversalted, it's tasty and you, and you get thirsty. And we want people to be thirsty for God, so to speak. We want our words to, to give people just a taste of how good God is. This requires creative energy using your creative power, which you have the ability to do, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we answer each person as, an, as a thou, as a person, not an it. We treat them as we have been treated by Jesus. So maybe it's the close family member who has walked away from Jesus. Do you have one of those? A child, a parent, a sibling, a cousin? They know all the answers, and they need to know that you still care about them even if they never return to Jesus or his church. Or maybe it's the buddy from the sports league who is surprised and amused to learn that you are a Christian. Like, you're good at sports, but you're also a Christian? That's strange. That's odd. Well, maybe you'll have an opportunity to tell them about the power of prayer in your life and ask them maybe if there's something that you can pray for them about. Or maybe it's the neighbor who keeps their distance, who assumes that you're judgmental, Yet they long for community. You might invite them to join your Emmanuel friends for dinner sometime during Lent. As Paul said at the beginning of this powerful book, the gospel is spreading and bearing fruit in the whole world, and nothing can stop it. So hold your head high, Emmanuel Anglican. This is your inheritance.
Now, as we end this Epiphany series, I'd like to pray a blessing for you inspired from the book of Colossians. And so now receive this as in the Lord. May the dignity of Christ lift up your heads in love, in labor, and in mission. May the glory of Christ give you humble courage before all the powers of this age. May the wisdom of Christ guide you down the path of maturity and make you fully human. May the cross of Christ set you free from performance traps, destructive habits, and from death itself. May the clothes of Christ cover you with his compassion, forgiveness, love, and peace. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, spoken and sung as you build each other up. And when Christ our life appears, may you also appear with him in glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.